morning. Am I on? There we go. Oh, I don't get to preach from down here very often. Can you guys see me in the back all right? Yeah, because I'm tall, you know. And, uh, well, you guys having a great experience here? This is uh, every year. Um, I think the very first year we did this, this is, how many years? Is, it's got to be 10, yeah. I think Jackie Grubbs was the first kind of administrator of this. And uh, we had Don Potter in for the the first year, didn't we? Was he here the first year? Seems like second year. Yeah. Anyway, really, really fun, and and uh, we just we just feel uh, so much like this is an experience, isn't it? Like, yeah. I I don't know if you have uh, this kind of struggle be in your life, but when somebody you know, ask you, like for me, because I, I live at Bethel, and they're like, wow, you know, we hear so much about Bethel, you know, tell us about it, and you tell people about it, it's like, even I feel bored, <laughs> like, that doesn't feel, you know, it, it's really hard to reproduce an experience with words, is what I'm trying to say, it's really hard when people say, what what happened at the worship school, you're like, well, <laughs> right? Well, uh, I learned this, and they're like, that's okay. That doesn't inspire me to come, you know. But there's something about um, the presence of being, you know, in the presence of 400 people who all, not just love God, but they're all passionate worshipers. Like, when I walk in here today, I'm like, it's just, I mean, walking in the door is so amazing, and I, I just felt like the Lord said, "Now this is what I enjoy. This is the music's good, and and uh, and all of that, but there's something about the heart, right? The Lord's looking for worshipers, not just worship. And so um, it's been exciting, and I hope that you're having it, that you're enjoying your time here at uh, Bethel and and with the team and Brian and Kathy and the whole team. I'm, I don't want to leave anybody out. I know it's a big team, so. I know uh, Kathy and Brian have spent, I don't know, I know Kathy's up till midnight for probably two months just putting everything together, so I feel like you've took in, taken a piece of me. <laughs> yeah, there's still more to go around, there's very few pieces of me left, but um, I, I want to just uh, tell you about one book, this is called Developing a Supernatural Lifestyle, and it's actually about developing a supernatural lifestyle. <laughs> That's why I called it developing a supernatural lifestyle. And um, <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd just read you uh, about 20 pages. And uh, <laughs> no, uh, this is going to be part of my message. I, um, every, it, I'll just read you uh, a page of the first chapter called History Makers. Every so often in the course of history, there are individuals born who defy common reason and statistical explanation. These are the great ones who break, who break the tether of their generational expectations and rise to the high call that seems to echo somewhere far beyond the grave. The prophets of old peered into the future and spoke of these violent ones who would force their way into the kingdom, take hold of heaven, and pull it down to earth. These reigning saints refused to have their exploits be a mere reflection of the past, but instead break the gravitational barriers of naysayers and doubters journeying far beyond the boundaries of reason into places where no one's ever gone before. 
Ultimately, they capture the prize of the upward call of God that lies in Christ Jesus. These are God's history makers, the Lord's chosen people, his mighty men, his holy nation. Many of us can feel the vacuum of this vortex drawing our hearts into this divine destiny. We find our inner man longing, sterny, and burning for the great adventure. Live or die, we must pass through the walls of mediocrity and find the promised land of our souls. We live with a passion to be numbered among those who have gained fame in the halls of heaven and are feared among the prison guards of hell. If we're going to walk as God's ruling royalty, it's incumbent upon us to pray unceasingly, give sacrificially, dream unreasonably, serve wholeheartedly, love unashamedly, walk innocently, believe undoubtedly, and live powerfully. These are the qualities of the bride of Christ in the hall of glory. She's called to be the most creative force in the face of the earth. Therefore, we must not allow ourselves to become known for our boxes, that is, famous for what we don't do because of our righteous restrictions. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin had certain moral values that restrained their behavior, but they were fam famous for what they did, not for what they didn't do. It'd be tragic if the most creative people on the face of the earth allowed themselves to be reduced to rent-a-cops guarding a box, the Ark of the Covenant, that God vacated more than 2,000 years ago. The truth is, if we don't take our rightful place in the earth, we'll relegate sinners, void of the mind of Christ, barred from the wisdom of the ages, and wandering in utter darkness, to be in the most brilliant minds of our time. If the brightest light in this world belongs to those locked in darkness, how great would the darkness in our world be? Something's fundamentally wrong with this picture, but this is our brain on religion. Religion is like kryptonite to Superman. Religion can conform the most righteous reigning saints into mindless zombies, puppets repeating someone else's convictions. They don't even understand themselves. And I'd just like to read you this one last part. The world's crying out in distress, and we must not miss this Kairos moment, the opportunity of the ages. In the late 60s, the Beatles took America by storm. In a few short years, the four boys from Liverpool altered the course of our nation's history. And soon after, the world was swept into the wake of their anointing. And all the while, the boys were singing, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't long before the Fab Four started to experience a crisis in their own souls. And they began to cry out in desperation, help, I need somebody, help, not just anybody, help, you know, I need someone. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now those days are gone, and I'm not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind, and I've opened up the door. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. I do appreciate you coming around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? John Lennon wrote that song when he was strung out on heroin. And he said he used to sing it over himself when he was, when he was having panic attacks and when he was distressed. Let me just finish this last paragraph. But their, their cry for help fell on deaf ears in the sanctuary hope. And soon we were calling Hare Krishna, our sweet Lord. The church can't afford to fall asleep in the harvest today as we've done so many times in the past. We're not supposed to reflect our culture. We've been commissioned to transform it. How many of you know we're going from a stereotype to a prototype? Would anyone like this book? Awesome. You can buy it in the bookstore. Anybody have a birthday today? Any birthdays? Anniversaries? Huh? Sunday? Okay, there you go. It's awesome. Oh, Holy Spirit, we just pray right now that you would cause us to be history makers, that we wouldn't get stuck in somebody's pattern. Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you for um, 
for the past, but we want to live in the, in the present and look to the future. And Father, we pray uh, this morning that you would open up the doors of our heart and that we begin to see things not as they are, but as you see them. That we begin to see things from eternity. Lord, open up uh, new dimensions um, in our understanding because you're opening up new dimensions in our experience. And Lord, I pray uh, this morning that we would, uh, our, our worldview would uh, be dramatically changed as we step into eternity. Amen. You know, usually um, every year I teach here, could I have some water? It's just, it, bottled water is fine if there's some on the front row. Um, every year, um, thank you very much. Every year I teach in the worship school, and I honestly most often teach about worship, and because it's a worship school, I feel like you came here to learn about more about worship and the presence of God. And, and actually, I got up this morning, and, and last night I planned to, I had this whole teaching, I, I've added to it over the years, but I basically have taught the same three or four messages over the last 10 years that we've been doing school, and and I got up this morning and um, found those notes that I've taught on, and I usually pray over them, add some other story or some other thing. And, and as I was doing that this morning, I felt like I was supposed to just teach on something totally different. It's not that I've never shared this message, but it almost seems inappropriate for worship school because it's, it's really not about worship. But, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway because I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit, and I'd rather be wrong trying to follow God than then give a, a, a message about worship, and no, that's not what I'm supposed to do, because I, okay, sorry about that, I mean, I, honestly, I have them right here, and I, I looked over them this morning, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to press in, this makes sense, this is what I'm going to do, I do it every year, and, uh, and I, just, I just felt, I don't know if you, this happens to you, but I, I have a lot of passion over teaching, and when I'm thinking about teaching something, and I can't get excited about it, I'm like, there is no anointing on that, I am not doing that. And so some of you may have heard uh, this message because I've shared it uh, only once at Bethel, but several times in the nations, and it, I feel like it's kind of a special message. And I want to talk to you about living from eternity. And uh, I, I want you to know before I start this message that for those of you that know me, this would you, I wouldn't need to say this, but there's people here from all over the place. So I, I actually believe when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. So... You know, there's so much weird teaching going on now that sometimes you have to say the obvious. I actually believe that I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. I actually believe in living for eternity. Are, are you with me? This, but this message happens to be the actual opposite of that, not, not against that, but it happens to be the, the, um, the paradox of that. And so um, I just wanted you to know that this message is not, doesn't encompass all of my theology about eternity. It just encompasses what I feel like I'm supposed to say here now. Are you with me? So I, so I believe in living for eternity, but today I want to talk to you about living from eternity. And um, in John 3.16, you know, we all know it's the most popular verse in the Bible. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting, or some versions say eternal life. And I received Jesus in 1973, and uh, I had a powerful encounter with God. Um, and uh, actually, I'll give you just a little bit of my history. My father drowned when I was uh, three years old. 
I had two stepfathers who didn't like me. I've shared a little bit about that in the conference, actually, when, in your session. Um, by the way, that session I did for you, I meant to do about worship, too, and I stepped in there, and the Lord said, no, you're going to talk about identity today. I'm like, well, okay, we're going to talk about identity, and I didn't do that session in any of the other in the conference, so um, I don't know what's going on with you guys, but this is a different class, at least from what I'm teaching. It's completely different than what I teach the worship school, but anyway, so I got saved, before I got saved, when I was, uh, my mother divorced my first stepfather, who was extremely abusive, Um, and then we ended up with a prowler at our house, trying to get into our house for nearly a year, we had the cops out, I'd, I'd say five nights out of seven we had the cops out. That wouldn't be exaggeration. I think every night, but mo- probably there was a couple nights we didn't. And the prowler kept trying to get in our house, and one night he got in. One night I was sleeping with a twenty-two rifle, and my, my mom was sleeping with a shotgun. And my mom's a very beautiful woman, and the, the stress of, of life, the divorce, the prowler, all of that crazy stuff, just... Uh, it manifests in her body, and she was covered with uh, psoriasis. Uh, you know what psoriasis is? And so her face, in her ears, all down her body, covered with psoriasis. And so we weren't, uh, we weren't raised to actually know God. Um, we probably would have died for the Catholic Church, but it, the only time I ever remember going to church was uh, for a couple of weddings. So, um, so one night, when I was 15... I said to the Lord, uh, I said out loud, I didn't know the Lord, but I said out loud, God, if you heal my mother, I'll find out who you are and I'll serve you the rest of my life. And an audible voice, the only two times I've heard the audible voice of God were both when I didn't know him. And an audible voice spoke to me and said, "Um, uh, my name is Jesus Christ and you have what you requested. And the next morning, my mother was completely well. The audible voice came back, and you know, it's hard to remember exactly when from this distance, but I think a week, about a week later, and uh, it, it, it said, my name is Jesus Christ. You said that if I healed your mother, that you'd serve me, and I'm waiting. <laughs> so I spent the next three years looking for God, and I would go in churches. You know, I didn't know, where, I didn't know the difference between a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, you know, a, a Catholic, a, a, you know, Protestant. I, I didn't know anything at all about religion. And to make matters worse, I couldn't read. Because then I graduated from high school, which that was fif- I was 15 then, but I found the Lord at 18. When I graduated from high school, I graduated with third grade reading level. I just, I absolutely couldn't read. So, so anyway, I would uh, stand in the back of churches. I'd go from church to church just walking, you know, just a young kid that don't know anything walk in the back of church, and I would stand in the back. Usually I'd stand in the back, um, and then I would wait, and then I would say, well, the God who spoke to me isn't here. Now, obviously, it's pretty bad commentary in the church. Maybe the Lord was there. I just didn't, I just didn't connect. So I did that for three years until uh, finally I uh, found the Lord. Kathy and I found the Lord together. I met Kathy when she was 12. We got engaged when she was 13. That's a true story. And uh, neither one of us knew the Lord. And we got saved together in this little home group. And I was 15, I was 18 and Kathy was 15. It was actually a, a home group of 100 people. And that began, that began a whole new life for me. And I wasn't a drug addict or I had never drank. 
I was just a broken person inside. I wasn't your stereotype, well, I have this great testimony, let me tell you, I was, you know, I just just the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill sinner. And the Lord changed me. Anyway, um, that's a little of my history. And so, you know, the, the verse I first memorized was John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life, eternal life. And, and I used to think that when I received Jesus in 1973, that I received eternal life. Like from that day on, I was going to live forever. And I no longer believe that. Um, let me finish before you run out, though. <laughs> I, I no longer believe that when I, when I received Jesus, that I received eternal life from that moment on. What I, what I believe, what, my understanding of eternity is much different. See, because eternity actually never had a beginning, and it never had an end. And so when I received Jesus, I actually stepped into eternity, past, present, and future. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says that he raised us up and he seated with us with him in heavenly places. How many of you understand that you are at Bethel Church in Redding, California, but you're actually also in heavenly places? Now, I believe that when that moves from a theology and a philosophy to a reality, that truth, that you're seated in heavenly places, it will actually change your destiny. Because I actually believe that, the Christi that Christians, now I can say this with confidence because I am a Christian and I am a leader and I travel the world, I can actually say that Christians are accustomed to believing things they've never experienced. And that, the, and, and that if you actually press them, that they would actually, they would actually repeat something that they never expect to experience. And I'm including myself. So I'm saying that we're accustomed to repeating things we've actually never seen, we've actually never heard, and we've actually never experienced. And let me just say this, that from the kingdom's perspective, from the Bible's perspective, you don't know it till you've experienced it. And I understand there's some people here that, you know, you've been taught that if you base your relationship with God on experience, you can be deceived. And, oh, gosh, do we know that? But the, but the truth is, is that if you memorize the whole Bible and you don't have an experience with the author, you're already deceived. Because yeah. the goal of the book is not that you'd memorize the book, but that you'd get to know the author. Yeah. Contrary to popular opinion, it's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. <laughs> and you've got to remember that the, the Bible, the New Testament especially, that we hold dear to our heart, the early church didn't even have that until 68 AD. The first, and most of the church didn't even have those letters. So I, I'm not, I believe in the Bible, I'm teaching it right now. I'm simply saying that to, to know this is not necessary to know God. <laughs> these, if these were synonymous, then, then the Pharisees would have rocked. So that's just a little side note. So I believe that when it says we're seated in heavenly places with Christ, that literally we have dual citizenship. We literally, we literally are citizens of earth, and citizens of heaven, and that's why Jesus said, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God's what's God's. He was saying, you have dual citizenship, and he said, render to, which means you have responsibility in two dimensions. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which I actually shared with the ones of you that were in the conference, it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The word new is the word prototype. It means never before created. 
When you received Jesus Christ, you became the first being to ever grace this planet that lived simultaneously in two dimensions. No being has ever lived simultaneously in two dimensions except for Jesus Christ himself. And now you. So that's why he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of all creation because when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he simultaneously lived in two dimensions. And then, how many of you understand, he didn't just die for you, he died as you. And we were, we're hidden in Christ. It's the greatest disappearing act of all time. <laughs> you guys are all right? Some of us believe that Jesus died somewhere around 2,000 years ago. But Revelation 13 says this lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, God crucified the the crucified Christ before the world was ever made. It's going to get worse. In Ephesians chapter 1, um, verse 4, we, you know, I, I, like I said, I believe I received Jesus, you know, in 1973. But according to Ephesians chapter, chapter 1, it says that I was chosen in him from the foundation of the world. Before, I, before the worlds were ever made, God already chose me. And in Jeremiah 1.5 says, God says to Jeremiah, God's, Jeremiah is trying to tell God, I don't want to be a prophet. Listen, I'm not good at this. How many of you have ever been there? That you're, you, you feel like you're not good at your call. Anybody? Four of us. Awesome. That's... And so Jeremiah is trying to tell God, hey, I'm young, I'm a youth, I'm not good at this. And God goes, listen, how can you not be good at this? Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. And before, and, and before you were born, I consecrated you to be a prophet of the nations. He's like, wait, Jeremiah, you're not being, this isn't rational. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. How could you not be called to do this? I knew you before you were formed. And before you were born, I consecrated, in your mother's womb, I consecrated you to be a prophet of the nations. So it's totally irrational that you're not ready. A, a, a lot of people get a weird stuff out of that scripture. I've heard people teach that we were spirits with God before we were in our mother's womb. I, I, I actually don't believe that's true, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. In Revelation chapter 4, John is speaking to Jesus, and Jesus says, Come up here, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Come up here. How many of you understand you're seated in heavenly places? Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Do you understand that your heavenly seat gives you eternal perspectives? Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Your heavenly seat gives you eternal perspectives. That's the first raise I've gotten since I've been at Bethel. That's not, that's, was a joke. Um, it's a little intense in here. Is it me? Is it, is it me or are they intense? Oh, they're thinking. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Follow me. I am currently the one who was, I'm currently the one who is, and I'm currently the ones to come. Now, do you know where you live? In Christ. I am currently the one who was, 
the one who is, and the one who is to come. And you are hidden in Christ. I'd like to propose to you that you're actually created to live tridimensionally. In the past, present, and future. You're like, no, no, how can that be? Because you received eternal life. Eternal life doesn't have a past, doesn't have a present, doesn't have a future. When you receive Christ, you came into eternity. You didn't just receive eternity forward, you received eternity present and past. You're like, what does that matter? I'm going to show you that, that, that your destiny, yours, personal destiny, actually lies in your history, your testimony, and your prophecy. But when I say your history, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about all y'all, as they say in Texas. Come on, Texans, help me out. Teaching these guys, Paul said it, didn't he, in the Bible. He said, I wish y'all. Okay. God, um, Jesus is in a discussion with the Pharisees, no, with the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're called Sadducees. <laughs> I know. Silly. Didn't make it up myself. Old joke. Um, and they, they, they're, they're arguing with Jesus about um, resurrection. About the resurrection. Sorry. My line went blank. So they're arguing with Jesus about the resurrection. And they give her, him an example. And they say, you know, this woman... She was married seven times, and she had no children with any of these men, because every one of these men died. So she's married seven different times, and all of her husbands died. She had no children with them, and they asked Jesus, when she goes to heaven, who will be her husband, since she had no children with any of these, these men? And I think it's kind of kind of a funny story because I don't know if you'd like to be like number seven. <laughs> I just mentioned you're dating this woman. You're like, and so have you ever been married before? And she's like, yeah, six times. You're like, wow, you've been through a lot of divorces. And she's like, no, they all died. I'd <laughs> be like, dude, I wouldn't eat the cooking. That's all I'm thinking. Well, we'd be going out to eat. I don't know what that woman's doing. But anyway, that wasn't the point, actually. So Jesus says to them, you're mistaken, you do not understand the scriptures of the power of God. When we rise from the dead, we'll neither be, we'll marry or be given in marriage, we'll be like the angels of heaven. And then he asked them a question, have you not read that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Have you not read that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Which would be a major passage for the Sadducees. And, and they're like, yeah, and he says, is God the God of the living or the dead? Now, what's the right answer to that? God's the God of the living. <laughs> no, the answer to that isn't the God, the God of the living or the dead. God is the answer, God, the, the answer to the Sadducees. What's the, the Sadducees are like, God's not the God of the resurrection. There is no resurrection. There's no such thing as resurrection. He goes, have you read that God's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And they're like, yeah, we've read that. And then he says, is God the God of the living or the dead? What's the point? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. That's the point, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. God's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. What's his point? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. <laughs> In other words, they're alive on the other side of the veil. 
God is God. It's not saying God's only the God of three people. God's only, have not read God's the God of only three people? No, that's not his point. <laughs> I know, that's the way people twist things today. God is the God of the living. And the people that have died, they are on the other side of the veil, alive. That's his point. Are you following me? In Genesis chapter 1, God says, let there be light. It's verse 3. Let there be light, and you know this, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning one day. And I could go on. Did you notice that God created the light and the darkness and separated them and called it a day before he created the sun and the moon? It's just like God to create light before he creates the sun. And he separates the light from the darkness and calls it a day. I'd like to, I'd like to propose to you that Genesis 1, is the, it, verse 3, is actually talking about the creation of time. That time is an invention. That God doesn't live in time. That God created time. So when he took the day and separated the day from the night, and he called it a day, he called it... The, the, when he separated, he says, and he called it a day. I'd like to propose to you that that was the first time that eternity actually had, uh, that eternity, the inside of eternity, there was actually a finite world. Because in God's world, God never had a beginning and he never had an end. And God never created anything that he didn't mean to live on forever. That's why he put the tree of life in the garden. He never intended you to, have, to die. You weren't intended ever to die. You were intended to eat the tree and live forever. The, the, the fact that things die, that they have a beginning and they have an end, that fact is a new invention in God's world. Things don't die in God's world. God creates things and he's a good master builder and his things last forever. Peter said it this way, don't let the fact escape your notice, beloved, that the, that the Lord, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, I understand that people are like, okay, we're in the third day, and I don't think that teaching's bad, but I don't think that's Peter's point. I think Peter's point is like, listen, listen guys, I want you to understand that God doesn't think inside of time. You think, when God says, I'll be right back... <laughs> you know, his idea of right back is totally different than yours. Because God's been around for 10 trillion never years. And so when God says right, it's like a millionaire, you know, it's like a billionaire saying, you know, I just spent a little bit of money. You, you know what I mean? I mean, the, the, a billionaire drops $20 million, and actually, I think the equation is something like, it's like you drop a $100 bill if you make the average $50,000, $40,000 a year. So when God says, I'll be right back, <laughs> you know, the disciples, like, they're in the book of Acts, they're like, he's going to be back any minute. They're like, no, Peter's like, listen, he's talking to people who are like, Jesus is going to be back any second. And he's like, yeah, a second to the Lord is much different than when you were living forever and you never had a beginning and you never had an end. And you're like, oh, I'm going to be there soon. <laughs> 2,000 years is like, uh, you know, nothing to a God who's never been born here we go 
And here's what I'd like to, here's what I'd like to suggest. I'd like to suggest that time is like this big train running through eternity, God's world. The engine being the beginning of time and the caboose being the end of time. And God can get on that train anywhere he wants. Like, it's the reason why I only actually believe in Christian counselors, because I think, if, uh, I think a secular counselor can tell you what's wrong with you. But only somebody who lives in Christ can go back to your past. I don't mean tell you about your past. I mean go back to your past. Because we live in eternity, and we are not limited by time and space when we're seated in heavenly places. Going to get worse. So when Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And we interpret that to mean, hey, we need to all get along. But when Paul said, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, it was in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, where he taught us that we're seated in heavenly places. And he's saying that in context of the, the unity of the Spirit that dwells in both dimensions. See, the spirit world doesn't live in time. How many of you have ever slept at night? I mean, we'll just see if you can raise your hand for that. Okay, it's good. You went to sleep, and you had a dream, and, this, and, this, and you felt like you were at war all night. And you woke up, and you slept really good, like eight hours, nine hours. You woke up, and you felt exhausted. Yeah, it's because some dreams... Some dreams, I call them, there's virtual reality dreams. Those are the kind of dreams you already know about. And there's reality dreams. Reality dream is when your soul sleeps and your spirit doesn't sleep. Because the spirit world doesn't sleep. And your spirit has an experience in the spirit world that in the morning you remember as a dream, but it was actually a real experience. Do you know that's deja vu? How many of you have ever been in a store? You've never been there before. You go the first time, you felt like you've been there before. You have. Your spirit got there before you did. That's deja vu. As a matter of fact, if you go back, if you, want, if you want me to prove this scripturally, if you go back and read, just take on the dreams. Just read. Just If you have a, a Bible program in your computer, just look up dream, dream or dreamt, anything that has to do with a dream, and go back and read the dream. And here's what you're going to find out. About six times out of ten you're going to find out that the dream that the person had was actually an interaction with God. For instance, um, the king, the king um, that, that uh, Abraham lied to, and his name is, I know it really well, I'll think of it in a minute, um, but he, Sarah, he said to the king, um, Sarah's my sister, remember that? It says Abinelech, right? King Abinelech, yeah. It says that that. The king had a dream in the night. Remember this? And it says, and God came to him in a dream. And they're having this interaction. It doesn't say he dreamt of God. It says, and God came to him in a dream and said, listen, if you touch that woman, you're going to die. And he, and he says in the dream, I've done this in the cleanness of my hands, the innocence of my heart. He said it was his sister. And God says, he's a prophet. And if you, don't, if you touch her, I'm going to kill you. Not only that, I'm going to kill all your household. He didn't dream of God. He, God came to him in the dream. If you look through the dreams, Joseph and Mary, every dream Joseph had, it says, and an angel came to Joseph in a dream. It doesn't say he dreamt of an angel. It says, while he was asleep, an angel came to him. He called it a dream, but he actually had a spiritual experience. 
Are you following me? That's because you live in eternity. Here we go. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We should read the Bible because then you could say we had official, as Bill says all the time, we had an official meeting, we read a scripture. Romans 8.28. How many of you love Romans 8.28, which says, God, all things, everybody say, all things, work together for good for those who love God. How many of you love that scripture? I mean, when life sucks, you're like, you know what, this sucks, but it says all, this is an all. <laughs> I don't know how this fits in all, but I can tell you he said all, so somehow he's going to work this out for good. How many of you have ever read that scripture? Do you know why all things work together for good? Because the next verse says, look at this, for those whom he foreknew, what? He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that we'd be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he what? Called. You, it's in the Bible. You should read it. Best hour. He, For those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so let's put this together. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Why? For whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he what? Glorified. Why do all things work together for good? What's, what's Paul's theological basis for that? Because you were born for glory, and when did he do that? Same thing Jeremiah 1. Listen, how can you not be a prophet? Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. And before, before you were born, I consecrated you as a prophet. So how can you not be a prophet? Here he's saying, listen. All things work together for good. How do I know that? For whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. Key is, he glorified you before you were, before the foundation of the world. He already created you for glory. That's why it doesn't matter what's happening in your life. It's already, the last chapter's finished. Do you understand? The last chapter of your life's already finished. And it's finished. It's a glorious ending. So you... <laughs> But I love this part. It says, whom he foreknew. You mean God made me serve him? No. Well, you said he predestined me. Oh, I said, whom he foreknew he predestined. When did he predestine you? Remember it says, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world? You go, you mean, wait a second. Did God take away my free will? No. Well, how did he predestine me then? Before the foundation of the world... God, before he created the world, he went to 1973. He went to the trail car called 1973, and he said, oh, in 1973, this is before he created the world. He went to 1973, and he said, Chris Valentin will receive me. He will choose me. I choose him first. <laughs> he didn't take away my will, but he knew what I would do. How did he do it? In his world, it's already over. When Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. What's he talking about? It's, see, God started from the end and worked backwards. Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world. You were already predestined for glory. God starts from the end, and he works backwards. You say, well, my life was all screwed up. How can it be? When he started from the end, he started from glory, and he worked backwards. God didn't make you choose him, but he knew you would, so he chose you first. 
Well, how does God know that? Because he already went to the, the place that you would be born before the foundation of the world. See, God doesn't live in time. Time is an invention. And God invented it, time, in eternity. Figure that out. That'll blow your mind. It gets worse. How, when Jesus died on the cross, how long was he dead? Well, the English version says he was dead. How long? Come on. This is not a trick question. Three days. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, Ephesians 4, that he, who, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. So it says, and, and the Psalms say that the Christ would descend into Sheol. He would take all the captives captive and he would ascend on high. Okay, let me just give you a little theological um, theology here. Theological theology. That's very deep. That would definitely be an edit in a book. Sheol is not hell. Sheol means the place of the living dead. For us Americans, it's like eternal Halloween. And inside of Sheol, there's Hades. Hades is not hell. Hades was a holding place for all of those who would eventually go to hell. But there was no judgment day yet. You with me? So there was Hades and there was Abraham's bosom. Do you remember that Lot and the rich man? In the, in, Jesus told the story about Lot and the rich man. They could see each other. There was a chasm between them. They couldn't pass from one side to the other, but they could see each other. Okay, that's not going to happen when you get to heaven. That's Abraham's bosom and Sheol, insider Sheol, Hades and Abraham's bosom. You with me? Wouldn't you like to have such an awesome bosom? God names the place of rest. Oh, after it, I don't know what a bosom is, but whatever it is, Abraham had a good one. So, so the Bible says that Jesus, he was dead three days, and he went into Sheol, and actually into Abraham's bosom specifically, and he took all the captives captive, and he ascended, he ascended with them on high. Now, I have a couple of theories, which I, some maybe aren't quite scriptural, but they're extra biblical. Well, a lot of things you believe aren't scriptural, actually. Like, raise your hand to receive Christ or pray a prayer. You can't find that in the Bible. That's extra biblical. It's not wrong, but it's extra biblical. So anyway, it is kind of weird that the way we get people in the kingdom is not even in the Bible. But that's, whatever, that's another deal for another time. But here's the point. So when Jesus died on the cross, he went into Sheol, he took all the captives captive, he ascended on high. And while he's ascending on high, do you remember that it says that many of the saints walk the earth? I have a theory why. Because when Jesus comes out of the tomb, he sees Mary. Remember, she thinks he's a gardener. Now, I believe that she catches Jesus on his ascension. The reason is because she tries to grab him when he says Mary and she realizes it's the Lord. She tries to grab him, and he says, don't touch me. Remember this? For I have not yet ascended to my father and to your father. Eight days later, Thomas is saying, listen, I'm not going to believe he rose from the dead unless I touch his, his hands. I put my fingers in his hands, and, I, and, I, and I, I touch his side. Remember this? Eight days later, Jesus walks through the wall, which I think is so cool he didn't use the door. <laughs> he walks through the wall, and he says to Thomas, touch me. But he says to Mary eight days before, don't touch me. My point is, is I think that Mary catches him on the way up. 
And I think the reason why the saints walk the earth is because you know how women like details? <laughs> I think she gets in this conversation with Jesus. And the disciples, I mean, the, all the saints of all, they're like, this could take a while. <laughs> uh, that part's extra biblical. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> but this is what I do know that's true, that when Jesus died on the cross and he went into Sheol and he took all the captives who were in Abraham's bosom captive and he took them to heaven, you were there. You're like, no, no, wait a second. That was 2,000 years ago. I wasn't even born yet. Uh-huh. You were actually, you were seated in heavenly places from where? The foundation of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he was dead three earth days. But when he passed from earth into Sheol, he passed from a time zone into a timeless zone. He passed into eternity because the spirit world doesn't live in time. That's why you're already seated in heavenly places. When did you get seated in heavenly places? Actually, you want to be theologically accurate? Before you actually accepted him. Why? Because he chose you from the foundation of the world. He actually chose you before you chose him because he knew you would, so he chose you first. <laughs> You're already seated in heavenly places with Christ. And when Jesus rose from the dead, you rose with him. You only think, you only think, you only think you have problems. Your life is already over. You can't do anything he didn't know you'd do. Lord Jesus, I'm so ashamed, you know, I don't know if you could forgive me. <laughs> what? Listen, he knew what you would do before the foundation of the world. He chose you anyway. You think you're hiding, so funny. I'm hiding no. Adam, where are you? That's one of the most, I don't even like that verse. I'm like, you can get so lost, God can't find you. I mean, that's pretty scary. <laughs> Hebrews 11, would you turn there? Man, someday I'm just going to teach on Hebrews 11, just the one chapter. I just love this chapter. But if you've ever read this chapter, a lot of people call this the the... the Hall of Faith, and it's, it's talking about how all of these guys served God, you know. By faith, we know the worlds were made. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. By faith, Enoch walked with God and was not. By faith, Noah being warmed in a dream. And it just goes on. By faith, Abraham, not knowing where he's going, just heard God and followed him. By faith, Moses chose God instead of the palaces of the pr of princes, and it just goes on to talk about David and all these crazy people just did these amazing things because they, they were looking for a reward. Are you with me? It says that he that comes to God, in fact, this is Hebrews 11, he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Then it goes on to talk about all these crazy people who did stuff for a reward. And then we get to chapter, and then we get to the end of the chapter, and, and before I go on, I wanted to say this. Do you know that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers were not inspired? In fact, the story was that someone added those on horseback one day, or probably over many days. But the point is, is that I think that some of the horses must, must have hit a bump, because sometimes where the guy put in the chapter breaks are in the middle of the conversation. And if you're like me, like I'll, I'll read a chapter or two or three a day, 
And if you read like that, like if you read to the end of the chapter instead of the end of the subject, you totally miss the point of several chapters. And this is the worst one in the Bible, right here. Because if you read chapter 11 and you start from verse 1, which is really where the thought progresses, he's telling you that people did all this stuff for a reward because you can't live for God without a reward. And he goes on through all these scriptures and he tells you about these crazy acts of of God and all these crazy people who did this amazing stuff for God, all looking for a reward. And then he, then he comes to this place where he tells you in verse 39 that all these gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. <laughs> and, and let me just start from verse 32 and just give you a little piece of it just so we pick up a little momentum of the conversation. He says, um, and what more shall I say for time will fail me He's like, he's already wrote like 32 verses that he says, listen, if I told you about everybody in the Old Testament, it'd take up the whole book. So he says, what more shall I say? The time will fail me if I tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jebethith of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. For weakness, they were made strong. They became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they may obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourging, just so chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, uh, afflicted, and ill-treated. Men in whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and in mountains and caves and holes in the ground, all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. L listen to this. Because God provided something better for us, for us, okay? Everybody say us. Okay, that us is not what you think it is. For God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, here's where the chapter breaks. Horrible. Because now he's going to make the point of all chapter 11, which you should read as the, as the climax of this thought that he had that God wants to reward people and you can't serve God unless you believe he's going to reward people. And all these people did stuff for a reward. They didn't get what was promised them. And then he's going to make the point of why they didn't. And by the time you get to chapter, the end of chapter 11, if you stop there, you're like, wow, this guy's got ripped off. And then he says, so let me read from verse 39. All these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. For God had something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run the race with endurance that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and all the rest. Here's the point. All these people God made promises to. Moses, Abraham, Samson, Samuel, all, you know, David, you know, Esther. All these people that loved God. God said, I'm going to do this stuff for you. But he didn't do it. And, God, and then he says this. And God did not give them what he promised them. You know why? Because God had something better for us. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, surrounding us, 
Let us run the race with endurance. What is he talking about? When I was, when I was in high school, we had the fastest 100-yard dash man in high school history at the time. I think his record has been broken since then. He was an African-American young man named Benny Brown. And because Benny Brown was breaking all the high school, the, the, internet, the national high school records, the media from all over the world, no, I'm sorry, from all over the United States would come to our track meets and they would cover our track meets. Like, we didn't have USA Today, but people like that would come to our track meets to watch, actually watch Benny Brown run. And so um, I remember that Benny Brown, was the, he was the anchor man in our 440 relay. Now, you understand that you usually, in a 440 relay, in any kind of relay, you typically put the second fastest man first. He runs first. The two slower guys run second and third. And then your fastest man runs last. And so Benny Brown was our anchor man, and we had never, ever lost a 440 relay in, in all of the four years that Benny was our anchor man. And so I remember specifically this one race um, because um, when they ran the race, we were coming around the corner, and when the third man handed the baton to Benny Brown, the baton got dropped. Now, normally race is over for that, for that team. Um, but the, the baton dropped, and it, it bounced off the end of the baton, and Benny reached back and grabbed the baton and took off. Now, these races are, are won in hundreds of seconds, so normally that is, that's it. And I remember when he grabbed the baton, we were in eighth place, and there's usually eight teams running. So he, he starts running, and we, the track team's on the inner field and with a lot of the media, and we start screaming, go, run, come on, go, because we have never lost a race. And so we're running, and he comes around the, the first corner, and he, he takes, takes the, second, the seventh guy, and then the sixth guy, and the fifth guy, and the fourth guy, and the third guy. And now he's in second place, and we're, he's heading for the tape. And we're all screaming, and the cameras are running. And, and I mean, the place just goes electric, and people are screaming in the stands. And it isn't just that it's Benny Brown. It's, we're obviously not going to break any record here, but we've never lost a relay race. But the fastest man in high school history has the baton. And he crosses the tape, and as he crosses the tape, he leans over, and by, I mean, milliseconds, he, he breaks the tape first, and we win the relay race. Now, how many of you understand that you never get a trophy for where the third man was when he handed off the baton? Or the second man? See, I mean, oftentimes, we would have got third or fourth place if we would have got, got a trophy for where the third man was when he handed the baton. But we never lost a race because Benny Brown was the fastest man in history. And when the baton got handed to him, how many understand that everybody else didn't get what they deserved, but they got what Benny deserved? Here's the problem. Here's the challenge. See, John the Baptist was the greatest man, the greatest prophet to ever live in the Old Covenant. Are you with me? But the least in the kingdom. See, the least in the kingdom wouldn't even be in here. The truth is that God loves us all the same, but he favors us differently. It's not true you're all created equal. The story of the talents is about one man got one talent, one got three, one got five. All through the Bible, Jesus makes a statement from the least to the greatest. So it's, it's true that God will reward us justly for what he gave you. What did you do with what he gave you? Not what he gave Brian or Kathy or anyone else. What did he give you? But here's my point. The least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest person in the old covenant. So he says, God made them promises, but he did not give them what he promised them. Why? 
because God had something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not receive their reward. Therefore, in other words, since they haven't received their their reward, therefore, since they haven't received their reward, therefore, laid aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, let us run the race with endurance. Why is he saying therefore? Because we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Who are those people? They're the people that haven't received their reward yet. Why didn't they receive their reward? Because God would have had to give them third place, fourth place, or fifth place. But God says, listen, God has something better for us. He's not saying us. He's saying all y'all. He's not saying all y'all. He's saying all y'all. In other words, God sees the body of Christ as complete on both sides of the veil. And what's the point? You aren't living for yourself. You're living for people who went before you. When you received Jesus Christ, you received eternal life, and you became a part of a cosmic family that lives outside of time. There are people who went before you who were part of us. When he said, preserve the unity of the Spirit, he wasn't just talking about the people you could see. He was talking about people that you can't see who are already on the other side of the veil, but they're a part of us. So when you received Jesus Christ, you became a part of a family where you have responsibility for people who are still alive, but on the other side of the veil, and they haven't received their reward yet, and they are watching you. And every once in a while, like like Moses and Elijah, who stepped through the veil on the Mount Transfiguration, every once in a while, they step through the veil and they cheer you on. But whether you see them or not, they see you. You know why they're so interested? Because they were promised promises, and God says, you're not going to get those promises until all y'all, until all you all finish the race. Because we are the fastest man. We're the fastest man. We were born to win. We weren't born to take second. We weren't born to be third. We were born to make disciples of nations, not just to make disciples in nations. We were born to to rule the world. We were born to lead the planet. That's Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. That's what we were born to do. Those people ministered to Nebuchadnezzar you were called to be kings. <laughs> this is getting good. You have responsibility for people who live on the other side of the veil. Because, get this, so do you. You mean when I die, I'm going to go to heaven? No, you're already in heaven. You're already in heaven. I'm waiting for the rapture. You're waiting for the rapture. That's good. Your body's going to go, but you're already there. It's just going to be a family reunion between you and your spirit. (laughs) It's 907 B.C., 1 Kings 13. And there's a king. His name is Jeroboam. And the prophet came and installed Jeroboam and commissioned Jeroboam and planned for Jeroboam to lead Israel in a new direction. But Jeroboam didn't do that. Jeroboam set up two golden calves and had Israel worship them and led Israel deeper into Baal worship. An unnamed prophet finds his way into the king's chamber, which I don't know how this happened, and the Bible doesn't tell you, but that would be, that'd be harder than seeing the president of the United States. Those, the kings were used to being assassinated, and they had 
They had very strong security systems. But somehow the unnamed prophet gets into the king's chamber and he begins to prophesy to the king. And he says to the king, God's going to tear down these altars. He's going to burn your priests on these altars. And before he can finish, the king goes, arrest that man. And when he stretches out his hand to say, arrest that man, his hand withers up. And the king says to the prophet, is there anything you can do about this? And the prophet prays to God, and God heals his hand. And the prophet finishes his message. God's going to burn down these altars. He's going to tear down these altars. He's going to destroy all these prophets. And he's going to call, he's going to call, he's call he, and he's going to raise up a king. His name's going to be Josiah. And he's going to call Israel back to God. So just go ahead and keep screwing around here and, and worshiping Baal, because God has a plan, and his name is Josiah. Well, you won't serve God, Jeroboam. God commissioned you. He called you. You won't serve him. It's okay. God's got a king. His name is Josiah. And he's going to turn Israel back to God. So just keep, up, just keep it up. And he walks out. 2 Kings 22, verse 1. 2 Kings. Do you understand? This was 1 Kings 13, 1. 2 Kings 22, verse 1. Josiah was 8 years old when he becomes king. I don't know if you know this, but this was 637 B.C. The prophetic declaration was 907 B.C. You're talking about like, I don't know, 330 years. 330 years, the word of God is, is pregnating the cosmos with this word. There shall come a king named Josiah. I'm sure the unnamed prophet's thinking the next king or the king after him. The way he's so confident with Jeroboam. But this word, this word of God, it's, in, it's impregnating the cosmos. How many of you know the... Jesus said the sower went out to sow seed. Remember that? And the seed was the word of God. And it fell on different kind of soil. Do you remember that? The word seed is the word sperma. The Greek word speme is the, <laughs> Greek word seed is the word sperma. We get our word sperm from it. In other words, when the word of God is released, it's like sperm. That's why Paul said, I'm I'm laboring till Christ is formed in you. How did he labor? He preached. And when he preached, his words impregnated people with Christ. Are you following me? So the prophet says, there's a, there's a, a king coming. His name is Josiah. And he's going to turn back the people to God. And he's going to create a great revival. He's going to tear down these altars. He's going to burn these priests on these altars. And the, the cosmos becomes impregnated with the word of God. The sperm of God from that prophetic declaration is in the cosmos. And what's it doing? It's waiting for somebody in the kingly line to be named Josiah. Now, if you check it out, there is no Josiah ever in the Bible except for Josiah who's eight years old. The only, it's not a common name is my point. And suddenly, somebody names, it's nine, 637 B.C., 330 years later approximately, Somebody names their son in the kingly line, Josiah. It's kind of interesting. And well, I'll just read you this part. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of somebody. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside from the left or right. It says that David was his father, but actually David had been dead for like 500 years. Actually, his father was Ammon. His grandfather was Manasseh. If you read the book of Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, it reads like a really bad soap opera. How many of you have ever read that? It's like this king did bad, this king did worse, and this king did worse than any other king before him. 
And then some good guy comes along like nine kings later, right? It reads like that. And this is what it says of Manasseh, his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather. It says, and, and, it says, and Manasseh acted more wickedly than all the kings who were ever before him, who were ever after him. And Manasseh ruled for 50 years. And when Manasseh ruled, he destroyed all the Bibles, what we'd call Bibles. He destroyed all the Bibles in the land, and he turned everyone to Baal. And it says his father, so Manasseh, had a son. His son was named Ammon. It says that Ammon walked in all the ways of his father, but he only ruled for two years. So you have 52 years, no Bible, no worship of God. Everyone's worshiping Baal. You got me? Josiah is eight years old when he becomes king. Now, you have the, this is really powerful if you read through the book of Kings because when you get to Josiah, he's like a major speed bump. You have no idea. How did this kid, you talk about generational curses. His grandfather is a witch's witch. His father falls in all the ways of his grandfather. It comes to Josiah. He's eight years old when he becomes king. And it doesn't even mention his father's name in his kingly lineage. It mentions his mother and David, who's 500 years dead, as his father. And this is what it says, and it says this. Listen to this. So Josiah, I'll tell you this story. Josiah orders the remodeling of the temple because no one's been in the temple for 52 years, and there are no Bibles. I'm not saying the rebuilding, the remodeling. We don't know much about Josiah's early life. He's eight years old when he becomes king. It's, he's 22 when he orders the remodeling of the temple. So it seems to me he's a nominal Christian. Uh, he's not obviously wouldn't be Christian. A nominal Jew, nominal believer. Doesn't seem to really have had much encounter with God. And then something happens. He reorders the rebuilding, no, the remodeling of the temple. And he takes his two, the his two uh, main scribes, main scribe and teacher, and he's uh, scribe and priest in those days, and he sends them into the, the temple, and he says, listen, you guys oversee the work, okay? I want workmen to come in. If you find any tithe money that's been hiding in there, because no one's been in there, give it to the workmen. Let's get this place remodeled. And something crazy happens, and I want to read you from verse 8. Then Hakai the high priest, said to Shephiah the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hakiah gave the book to Shephiah, who read it. And Shephiah the scribe came to the king, brought back the word of the king, said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered into the hands of the workmen who have oversight the house of the Lord. But moreover, like, let me tell you something really exciting. Shephiah the scribe told the king, saying, Hakiah the priest has given me a book. And Shephiah read it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book, of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, he's 22 now. From that moment on, he begins to tear down the altars of Baal, destroy all the priests. And the great, second greatest revival in history, in, in Israel's history, happens through Josiah. What happened? This is what I think happened. I think that they find a book that hasn't been read in 52 years. And he begins to read the book. Shephiah is reading the book. And suddenly he comes to 1 Kings chapter 13. Where 330 years earlier. It says there's coming a king. His name is Josiah. I think he runs into the, to the king, courts of the king. And he goes, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. You're in the book. Listen, you're in the book. 
300 years ago, someone looked into the future. They saw you. They prophesied the future, and their words became your world. How does God, how does God create the future? That's why it's called His story. It's all about His story. You're part of His story. You're a page in His story. Are you with me? How does God create history? He looks into the future. He calls the prophets. The prophets speak into the future and with his words be create our worlds. God is still creating. When Josiah hears the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And from that moment on, we know about from 22 on, he becomes a radical revivalist. And Israel turns back to God after 52 years of following Baal. Because one man realized that someone from the past was affecting his present. <laughs> Acts 3. A man has just gotten saved at the gate beautiful. You know the story. The man says, alms you have money Peter said we're pastors we don't have money but what we have we'll give it to you in the name of Jesus walk and the man you know walk leaped and praised God and all of a sudden this big crowd gathers around and Peter starts to preach to him and here's the end of his message right before he gives quote the altar call he says this and likewise all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also have announced these days it's verse 24 and it's you who are the sons of the prophets. You are the sons of the prophets, the covenant which God made with the fathers, with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I used to read this, and I'm thinking, okay, he's about to, there's about to be like 3,000 people saved. And he's, he's, and he's saying, listen, you know what? You're like the sons of the prophets. Like the Old Testament, they had sons of the prophets. And, and, and I, I, I thought that Peter was saying like you're, like, you're going to be like one of the sons of the prophets. You're going to follow God like the sons of the prophets did. And then I re, I was, one day I was rereading those verses, like the whole chapter, and I realized, wait a second, that's not what he's saying at all. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, and likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward announced these days. In other words, Samuel started to look into the future. <laughs> And he started to prophesy about a people who were yet to be born. Ezekiel said, I see a people with a new heart and a new mind. Not like us. Not people prone to evil. But people who have the heart of God. The mind of Christ. Isaiah said, I see people rising in darkness. And Zechariah said, I see a people the least are like David and the greatest like God. And he began to prophesy about a people who would walk in wonders and signs and miracles. Not people who struggled like they did, but a people who had, who had never yet been born. And they, they, they prophesied about people who would be like God to the planet. These people, from Samuel, Samuel and his successors, Amos, Hezekiah, Haggai, all, Joel, they all began to prophesy about a people who were yet to be born. Are you with me? What were they doing? Peter says, and you are the sons of the prophets. What's he saying? 
The prophets gave birth to you through prophetic declarations. They released the sperm into the cosmos so that you have become the recipient, the recipient of their prophecies, the answer to their prayers. How does history become his story? How many of you understand that when we dream with God, we become co-creators of his imagination? You're not living for yourself. You're living for people who went before you who have yet to receive the reward. And you're living for people who come after you who are yet to be born. There's a great story in Hebrews 7 talking about Abraham. And Abraham went down into Sodom. Let me, Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and two other cities, get these kings, get in a war, four kings against five. And Lot, Abraham's cousin, is in Sodom when the battle takes place. And Sodom and Gomorrah lose the battle. And these five kings take all the people from all of these countries, all of these cities, and they lead them into captivity as POWs. And it says this, just, just one line. When Abraham saw that Sodom had been captured, he went out after them. Kind of crazy. Abraham and a few shepherd guys, like 300 of them, go after five kings. And they beat the five kings and get Lot back. And they're walking through the battlefield, picking up the spoil. Now it's really weird. And a man walks into the battlefield. And the Bible says this man has no beginning and no end. That's a weird guy right there. It says this man had no beginning and no end. So you can imagine they've already had a miraculous victory, a few shepherds against five kings. They whip these five kings. They're in the battlefield. And all of a sudden, a man walks into the battlefield. He has no beginning and no end. And it says that Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoil. Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoil. The man's name was Melchizedek, a man who had no beginning and no end. And Abraham sees him, he gives him a tenth of all. Wild story, right? It gets crazier. It says when Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all, it says that Levi tied to Melchizedek. You're like, okay. No, you don't understand. Abraham had Isaac when he was like, what? A hundred, almost 100 years old, right? Abraham was about 100 years old when Sarah had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them was named Levi. 11 tribes worked and tithed to the one tribe who received tithes, Levi. The tribe of Levi received tithes. Are you with me? Hebrews says that Levi, who received tithes, gave tithes when Abraham tithed, tithed to Melchizedek. Only one problem. Levi won't be born for 150 years. When Abraham tithed to a man who had no beginning and no end, he tithed into eternity. And when he tithed into eternity, he reaped a legacy. 
so that people would not be treated as they deserved, but they would be treated as their great, 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 great grandmother and grandfather deserved. And it's what Maximus said in the movie Gladiator when he said, what we do today will echo in eternity. You are not living for yourself. When you receive Jesus, you receive eternal life, not life forever only. You receive a family who lives in eternity, and you also live in eternity already. And you're responsible for people who haven't received their reward. You're responsible for people who are with you, which is what we almost always emphasize. You know, be kind to your neighbor, love your neighbor, love this person, love the people you can see. But I'm saying to you that you, that these people that went before you and these people who have come after you, they're dependent on you. I want to read you this little thing I wrote a while back. The Lord said to me, the spirit of fatalism and the spirit of martyrdom were holding back the apostolic age. Fatalism refuses to acknowledge positive advancement on the earth and looks for the world to erode instead of evolve. Scriptures like there shall be no end to the increase of his government or of peace are forced into a time zone that don't inspire hope for this generation. Fatalism changes our message from the kingdom is at hand to the end of the world is near. How many know Jesus told us to preach the kingdom's at hand? But the message has changed to the end of the world is near. The church is notorious for using fear to motivate people to come into the kingdom. We actually build partnerships with terrorist spirits and believe we can drive people to God. But there's no fear in love. And the kingdom of God doesn't do punishment. So it's very difficult to keep people in the kingdom who have been driven there by a fatalistic eschatology. Martyrdom embraces death in a sadistic sort of way and values the cross above the joy set before it. Jesus endured the cross. He didn't enjoy it. When it was time for him, time for him to die, he prayed, if possible, take this cup from me. Now, I just want to finish with this. I received Jesus in 1973. In 1970, there was a book written called The Late Great Planet Earth. Many of you are in, this, in here are too young to, to know this unless you know some church history. And The Late Great Planet Earth basically said, like, there is no future. Like, we're going to get raptured any time. In fact, I got saved in the year that I graduated from high school, and I never went on to college because I was told it was a waste of time. The most popular bumper sticker of our time was, you, you know, this, you can have this car after the rapture. Something like that. But the point is, is that I was taught there is no future. The beast is coming, the mark of the beast, and, you know, the goal is to, like, teach your children to not take the mark, and it was all about this incredible fear. And listen, how Lindsay wrote that book, I honor him as a man of God. I've shared things that I thought were wrong later, and I hope that he feels like he is. But here's the point. It created a mentality in the whole Jesus movement, and that is this. There is no future. What happens when you stop prophesying the future? Remember, how does history become history? God sends prophets, prophetic people, prophetesses. He tells them about the future. They prophesy into the future. And what happens? Their words become our worlds. That's how God does history. Are you with me? He co-labors with us through prophetic declarations. That's why, you remember, Jesus said, you've killed the prophets. He didn't say anything about the scribes or the, or the priests or all those people served him. But who did, they, who did he accuse that generation, Matthew 23, of killing? The prophets. I've sent to you prophets. 
Why the prophets? Because the prophets are the ones and the prophetic people are the ones who create the future. But what happens when you are taught there is no future? You've got to get this. What happens when you're taught there's not supposed to be a future? I'll tell you what happens. The prophets stop prophesying. And the greatest resurgence of psychics since the days of Daniel emerge. You, you have to understand, before 1970, a psychic was a rare thought. Yes, did we have psychics? A few. Did we have witches? We had a few. It wasn't popular to be a psychic. It wasn't popular to be a witch. Those things were all thought of as evil. But what happened when the prophets stopped prophesying because they didn't think there was going to be a future? Suddenly, somebody came into the vortex of that prophetic mantle, and they took that prophetic mantle on, and they began to prophesy the future. And guess what, they, guess what else they did? Is that when the prophetic move, in, move began to reemerge in the 80s, in the mid-80s, that psychic spirit began to dictate what kind of prophetic declarations they would be. And instead of prophesying the future, we were prophesying judgment. And we don't even realize it, but we're creating the very thing we're prophesying. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And I'd like to propose to you that God is looking for a people who know that God has plans for us, not plans for calamity. That was the Old Testament even. A worse covenant. Jeremiah said, I know the plans God has for you. Not plans of calamity. Plans that give you a future. God is calling us to be a people who live from eternity, not just for eternity. Heaven is your reward, but heaven on earth is your ministry. I want to pray for you, if you'll stand, Ecclesiastes Solomon said this, God has, God has put eternity in our hearts. It's chapter 3. God has put eternity in our hearts, without which no one could know the works that God does from the beginning to the end. You know, a lot of us, you're going through trials. If you've come here, I, I could feel it like the first day. Amazing worships coming through broken vessels. You're going through trials. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense because you haven't come up here. See, you can live from earth towards heaven. See, you have dual citizenship, but do you live from earth towards heaven or from heaven towards earth? See, if you lived in Calcutta, India, and you became, and you married someone from America, and you, and you kept your citizenship, and you were able to keep both citizenship, you would be, you would be a citizen of India and you'd be a citizen of America. Now, you could live from Calcutta, India, from the poor towards wealth, or you could live from America towards India. You could actually give a hand up. Are you following me? You live in both places. The question is, where is your home? 
Like, where do you keep your residence? If you see, if you take your, if you live in heavenly places and visit, and earth becomes your vacation home, you can understand the prominent, significant difference that your life is going to have when measured by impact. Because the resources of eternity are with you. And surrounding witnesses are for you. Every day that we get discouraged, and I have lots of those, I haven't listened to the surrounding voices that are cheering me on because my, in my destiny is their destiny. And in my reward is their reward. Because I'm part of a cosmic family. So discouragement is irrational. If you knew who your daddy is and where you're seated. And when, when, when John said there's more for us than those who are against us, I don't think he's just talking about angels. I think he's talking about heavenly watchers who haven't received their reward. And so I want to pray right now that the Lord would open up the eyes of our understanding, as Paul said, and as Solomon said, that he would put eternity in our hearts. And he said, no one can know what God's doing without eternity in their heart from the beginning, God, what God's done from the beginning to the end, unless he puts eternity in their heart. So I'm praying for you right now. So you can put your hand on your heart. What are we doing? Oh, I've got one minute. Holy Spirit, now I leave, got <laughs> preach the eternal gospel. That's the part of the problem. <laughs> no one's fallen out of a window yet and raised from the dead. <laughs> I've gotten close, though. People have fallen asleep and just not fallen out. So, Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you would release eternity into our hearts, that we be cognizant of these things that seem to be in the subconscious realm of the Spirit, that we live in eternity, and yet we seem to be completely, at times, unaware of the significance of our heavenly seating and our eternal perspective. And Lord, I release right now over every single person in this room a new, a new dimension of living that literally that you would unlock the dimension, uh, the word revelation means to uncover. That you would uncover what's already relevant in their lives, but they've been unaware of. And Lord, I pray for a spirit of revelation to be in this room, that we begin to live in a new dimensions of your grace, and we live in, in, in eternity, from eternity and that we would become people who prophesy into the future because we believe that the world has a future and a hope. That there shall be no end to the increase of his government or of peace was a prophetic declaration for all generations. And Lord, we receive that right now in Jesus' name. You said arise and shine for your light has come. Lord, we just arise right now in this darkness and we begin to shine that darkness would flee that demons would flee that we would take a stance in the darkness and it would no longer be darkness and they would say of this generation this was the beginning of history being rewritten Lord I just release that over these people that you would give them prophetic songs that speak about the goodness of the future that our great, 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 great grandchildren would benefit from this morning. 
that they would receive not what they deserve, but what we deserve, because we have, that we would sow into eternity and we would reap a legacy, that we would live our lives sowing into a man who had no beginning and had no end. And may my children who are yet to be born benefit from my life's stance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Uh -huh.